Chapter 8 of Cut by the County, or Grace Darnell, by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. All was silent, all was gloom. Frederick Fredrickson, the great surgeon, had come and had gone, and was to come again. So far, he had been able to say a few words of comfort or of hope. Sir Alan's condition was so precarious that the surgeon had not dared to attempt the extraction of the bullet, and until that was extracted there could be little hope of recovery. The symptomatic fever was more violent than is usual in such cases. The patient was delirious, sleepless, and unable to take nourishment. Altogether, the case looked threatening. Lady Darnell's slumbers had not lasted long after that awful dream of hers. At four o'clock in the morning she had awakened and had gone to Grace's dressing-room to give herself a cold bath and to dress for the day. And now it was late in the afternoon, and she had not closed her eyes since that troubled sleep on the sofa. The three women wandered about the house like three ghosts, so pale and wan and silent were they all. Grace turned to Colonel Stukeley for her only comfort. Dora read her Bible at all times and seasons. Lady Darnell sought comfort from no one. She paced with noiseless footfall up and down the corridor outside her husband's room for hours at a stretch. She interrogated everybody who came out, the neatly clad nurse in her prim cap and spotless apron, Danvers, the medical man, Purdue, the old military servant. These were her only sources of comfort, and such comfort as they could give was mixed with gall. It was some relief to hear of her beloved, to know that he still lived— it was agony to know that the fever still raged fiercely, that the delirium continued without abatement. He could recognize no one, what mattered who watched beside his bed what hireling hands ministered to him. He would know me, said Clare, piteously, but they will not let me go to him. My dear soul, replied the colonel, soothingly, he does not even know me, his old comrade of many a forced march. Why, he and I have ridden side by side over an Indian desert, when we were nodding asleep in our saddles for sheer weariness. We were chums and companions for a quarter of a century, from Eton to the Punjab, and yet he does not recognize me. He would know his wife, said Clare, with conviction. As the day wore on, she could hardly be induced to leave the corridor. Lunch, dinner, all conventional meals were scorned by those three women, but it was only Lady Darnell who had not broken her fast by so much as a biscuit since the previous evening. But at last, Grace beguiled her stepmother into her den, and made her sit by the fire and take some tea and bread and butter. Do you want to be ill too, and make us still more unhappy? said Grace, reproachfully. She had insisted on giving Lady Darnell her own bedroom, the door of which was opposite to the sick-room, while she herself was to occupy a little bed hastily put up in the dressing-room. This arrangement was deeply resented by Dora. "'I think if anybody has a right to be near Alan at such a time, it is I, his sister,' she said, when she and Grace were alone. "'But surely, Aunt Dora, his wife's right is above all others. That depends upon the wife. Then, if there can be any such distinction, nobody can dispute my stepmother's claim, for she is the most devoted of wives.' "'She has a knack of seeming very devoted,' remarked Dora." "'Seeming and a knack,' repeated Grace indignantly. "'How can you say such things, Aunt Dora? "'How dare you insinuate that my father's wife is not true?' "'I insinuate nothing, Grace, "'and I am not going to be taken to task by a schoolgirl. "'I can only say that Lady Darnell is a mystery to me, "'just as she is a mystery to the county. "'Indeed, I may say that you are the only person "'who appears to understand her and believe in her.' "'My father believes in her,' retorted Grace, "'more and more indignant. "'That is enough for me.' "'Your father is under the spell of a potent fascination, my dear.' Have you never heard of a middle-aged widower subjugated by the maneuvers of a handsome widow, a widow whose antecedents are wrapped in profound darkness? You are talking most unjustly, Aunt Dora, and what is more, you know that you are unjust. I wonder you don't expect something to crawl out of your Bible and sting you. I wouldn't sit with my Bible on my lap and spit venom at innocent people. If you cannot control your tongue, Grace, I shall go to my own room, said Dora, closing her Bible and rising as if to depart. "'I shall be very much beholden to my tongue if it drives you there,' retorted Grace, upon which Miss Darnell had no option and was obliged to carry out her threat, more especially as the room was Grace's own particular den, and she was only a visitor there. She departed, carrying her Bible and a large assortment of angry feelings with her. 
but she did not retire to the solitude of her own apartments in the north wing. Solitude is apt to be intolerable in these periods of suspense and anxiety. Miss Darnall went down to the drawing-room, and on her way met a servant who was going upstairs to announce Mr. Colchester. He was in the drawing-room, the man said, and wanted to see Lady Darnall, Miss Grace, anybody. Dora felt that she came under the head of anybody, so she hurried to the drawing-room, eager to be en rapport with the county, though indeed, in spite of his splendid position, she always looked upon Edward Colchester as in some wise an outsider. He was so good-natured, so hail-fellow well-met with all the world, so little governed by the draconian laws of county society. She found him in the drawing-room, in hunting clothes, fidgeting about with a whip in his hand, just as if he had that moment dismounted to rest his hunter's back during a pause in the morning's work. "'My dear Miss Darnall,' he cried, seizing her hand, "'what a dreadful thing this is! Been out with Colonel Thorpe's harriers, only just heard it on my way home, or should have been here before. How did it happen? Is he very bad? How is Grace?' He forgot himself in his agitation, and said Grace to Cor. "'It is a long story, Mr. Colchester, and it is a profound mystery. We none of us know what it all means yet.' My poor brother is in a most precarious state. I fear we will lose him. Here the tears rushed to her eyes, and they were not crocodile tears. If she hated her brother's wife, she loved her brother, and though she could not bear to see him happy in a second marriage, nay, resented that second marriage as if it were a deadly wrong done to herself, she could not calmly contemplate the possibility of losing him. Don't cry, said Colchester, very much inclined to be tearful himself. Things are never so bad as they look. Doctors are such regular old ravens, don't you know? They like to frighten us out of our wits in order to take credit for their wonderful cleverness when the patient pulls through. We pulled him through, they say, and then we poor fools pay their big bills without blinking. But for goodness sake, tell me how it happened. Sir Alan shot himself, they say, late last night after you had all gone to bed. Not all, said Dora. Lady Darnall sat up late to write letters. She was still up at the time it happened. Then she must know all about it. She appears to know nothing. She had been to Grace's room. She was in the corridor when she heard the pistol go off. And Sir Alan was alone in his room? So it appears. He had gone to bed an hour before. He must have got up and gone back to Lady Darnall's morning room, where he had left the case of revolvers on the table. Why he should have got up and half-dressed himself, and gone back to get those pistols, is an unfathomable mystery. He may have heard burglars, or fancied he heard them, suggested Colchester. Some men are always on the key vive for burglars, sleep with life preservers under their pillows. They might burgle all round my house, and I should never hear him, but I know it is a weakness with some men." How do you know that there wasn't a burglar there? He may have shot Sir Alan. Dora shook her head. I do not believe it was a burglar. If there had been anyone in the house, any scuffle between Sir Alan and a robber, Lady Darnall must have heard it. She was in the corridor when the pistol went off. Then how do you solve the mystery? It is my painful conviction that the deed was either murder or suicide. Suicide? exclaimed Colchester. Out of the question. Why, there wasn't a happier fellow in Wilts than Sir Alan, the cheeriest, the kindest, the most genial of men. Kind, genial, I admit, said Dora but I know my brother better than anyone else can know him. I was his companion and confidant from the time I left school till the day he married his second wife. I do not believe that he has been happy of late. His marriage was not a satisfactory marriage. Even if he himself could have felt thoroughly satisfied, which I do not think he ever did, he knew that the county was dissatisfied with his choice. He knew that the cloud of mystery which surrounded Lady Darnall's antecedents cast a dark shadow upon an old and honoured family. People might like and esteem him, but they could not esteem a woman of whom they were told nothing, who was foisted upon them without a word of explanation. And so they naturally fell away from their old friend, and, although my brother pretended to take the matter lightly, I believe he was cut to the quick. "'The county are a set of snobs,' said young Colchester, swallowing an evil word with a wry face. "'Why couldn't they take such a splendid woman as Lady Darnall on trust?' "'My dear Mr. Colchester, I am thankful to know that in a good society no one is ever taken on trust,' replied Miss Darnall. "'What could society be like if people were?' "'Perhaps a good deal pleasanter than it is now,' retorted the reprobate squire, who troubled himself much less about the antecedents of an acquaintance than about the pedigree of a foxhound. "'No, Mr. Colchester,' continued Dora Darnall, "'my poor brother has not been happy of late. 
There are mysterious circumstances connected with his marriage that I have not been able to fathom, but I am not a fool, and in spite of all outward appearances, I have seen enough to know that Alan is not happy. This sudden idea of going off to winter in Italy is so unlike him, such a complete breaking up of the life he loves, that the notion could have only arisen out of a disturbed state of mind. But my dear Miss Darnell, the physicians ordered, interrupted Colchester, physicians may be inspired to order anything. They are often only the mouthpieces of their patients. If this dreadful event is not the work of my brother's own hand, in an interval of despair, why, then, we have to look for a still darker solution of the mystery, and to ask where is the murderer? I say burglar, protested Colchester. Sir Alan heard a man in the room next to his own, got up, put on his coat, challenged the man. Burglar saw revolvers on table, snatched up one, and shot Sir Alan, or shot him with a revolver of his own, just as likely. Would a burglar enter a room in which there were two lamps burning, a room evidently occupied? Burglars have cheek enough for anything— no doubt Lady Darnall keeps her jewels in her bedroom. Women always do. Miss Darnall shrugged her shoulders, with an air of declining to waste any more time in argument with a person of Mr. Colchester's limited intellect. I should very much like to see Grace, he said, getting very red and faltering a little, if she is not too bad to see anyone. She may not be too bad to see you, replied Dora. I dare say her taste for hunting will survive the calamity that has fallen upon us. True, answered Colchester, simply. She may like to know where our next week's meets are to be, even though she can't go out. She is always interested in the hounds. Perhaps she would like to have a couple of puppies at walk. They might be an amusement to her while there is illness in the house. But I trust in God, poor Sir Alan will pull through quicker than you expect. Dora rang the bell and sent a servant for her niece. Mr. Colchester walked up and down the room meanwhile, sorely troubled and finding no word to say to his companion. The footman came back to say that Miss Grace Darnell sent her compliments to Mr. Colchester and was much too unhappy to see anyone. Thank ye, said the young squire, and when the man was gone he added moodily, I didn't think she'd see me. She's been uncommonly rough on me for the last year or so, and before she went to school in Paris, we were no end of chums. Goodbye, Miss Darnell. I shall call again tomorrow, and perhaps Lady Darnell will be well enough to see me. I have always been one of her warmest admirers, you know, and I... Well, it would take a deuced lot of hard facts to make me believe that her influence upon Sir Alan's life has been anything but a good influence, and that he isn't as happy as a bird in his marriage with her. And with these words, Mr. Colchester departed, feeling more easy in his mind after he had thus expressed himself. The vicar's wife and the doctor's old maiden sister called in the course of the afternoon, full of friendliness and anxious to see Lady Darnell were she able to receive a friend. The county sent cards and inquiries, but offered no warmer form of sympathy. And so the day of long grief and fear wore on, to be followed by another sleepless night and a dawn of sorrow. There was no improvement in the patient. The utmost comfort Mr. Danvers could offer was the assurance that he saw no increase of danger. Dora and Grace went down to the dining room to breakfast on this second morning, but Lady Darnell could not be influenced to leave her room. There she was close to the sick chamber. There she was within call at any moment should her husband recover his senses and ask for her. There, too, she was secure from the horror of strange faces, the agony of having to go through the routine of daily life. She was shut in from the outer world, her own mistress. Grace had anxieties of her own, as well as that agonizing fear for her father's life. She wanted very much to have a few words with her godfather, and on Miss Darnell retiring to her daily interview with the housekeeper, the desired opportunity occurred. Grace and Colonel Stukeley were alone. "'Have you seen anything more of him?' she asked, plunging at once into the heart of her subject. "'Have you heard anything?' "'Not a word,' replied the colonel. "'I took a long walk yesterday afternoon with the idea that I might find out something. "'I called at the inn, saw the landlord, and asked if he had any strangers lodging in his house. "'Not a mortal. "'Then I went to the round of the better class of cottagers, "'mostly pensioners of yours and Lady Darnell's, to whom you have introduced me at odd times. "'I didn't put my questions directly, but let out our idea of a burglary at Darnell, "'and asked if strangers had been noticed about the place.' I even walked across to Handlebury Union, with the notion that it was just possible the poor fellow may have had to take refuge there. Oh, Colonel, how utterly dreadful! My dear child, the Union has sheltered better men than he. However, no such person has been heard of there. 
So I take it, Mr. Comlock must have had a few shillings about him in spite of his wretched appearance, and that he has gone on to some other place. The mystery is that he should have come here at all, unless with the idea of seeing you. I feel convinced that he came here to see me, and for no other purpose, as that he is lying dead or dying on some dreary common where the foxhounds are more likely to find him than anybody else, said Grace impetuously. Oh, what double misery, Victor dying or dead, my father's life trembling in the balance, it seems as if the world were coming to an end. In vain the colonel argued with his goddaughter, urging that in life the unforeseen is always likely, and that there was no reason to grieve for the face of a young man who had perhaps already fallen on his feet. Grace was not to be comforted. The romantic fancy which had induced her to pledge her young life to this stranger was a folly of the past, but all her womanly feelings were enlisted by her lover in the hour of his helplessness and destitution. "'To think of me, surrounded with all these luxuries,' she exclaimed, looking angry at the richly furnished breakfast-table, "'while the man who was to be my husband has not as good a shelter as the stable-dogs.' "'My dear child, a young man's life is generally a fact of his own making,' said the colonel sagely. "'A man of education, such as you describe this Comalock, could hardly fall so low except through his own misconduct.' "'You said that before,' retorted Grace. "'Pray don't sermonize. "'If I were not so anxious about my father, "'I would take a couple of dogs "'and ride over every bit of waste ground within ten miles "'till I found that poor fellow.' "'If that is your idea, Grace, I can carry it out for you, dogs and all,' said the colonel, kindly. "'Oh, my dear godfather, how good you are!' cried the girl, repenting of her rudeness. "'Forgive me for my ingratitude just now. I hardly know what I say. "'I am so very miserable about Victor, about my father, and Lady Darnall most of all.' "'Poor Lady Darnall. Yes, your father's accident is a terrible blow for her. "'It is not that only,' said Grace, dropping her voice and drawing a little nearer to the colonel. "'But it is all so strange, so full of mystery.' And then she told Colonel Stukeley how she had been awakened by a cry of agony from Lady Darnall, and of those strange words spoken in a dream. My fault, my fault, I murdered him. Was that not strange? asked Grace, with a troubled look. Only strange as dreams are strange. Would you accuse Lady Darnall of having shot her husband upon such evidence? She fell asleep with her mind full of death and murder, and dreamed that she herself had fired the fatal shot, or had been individually concerned in the deed. Dreams are for the most part sheer lunacy. God knows what hideous visions her troubled brain may have woven." "'Yes, that is just what I thought at the time. "'But the words have haunted me ever since. "'You know how fond I am of Lady Darnall. "'I believe I love her almost as well as I could have loved my own dear mother "'had God spared her to me. "'And yet there are times when I feel worried and perplexed "'about the mystery of her past life. "'Aunt Dora says such cruel things. "'My dear, it is in your aunt's nature to say cruel things, "'just as it is in the nature of wasps and hornets to sting. "'I don't wish to be rude about your family, "'but I fancy that old Sir George Darnall's second wife "'must have introduced a particularly venomous strain to the fine old stock.' It is a good thing for the race that Miss Darnall has remained a spinster. Yes, Aunt Dora has a particular talent for being disagreeable, and she has exercised it unsparingly with regard to Lady Darnall. I always take my stepmother's part, and yet in these last dreadful days Aunt Dora's insinuations about the mystery of her past life have made me miserable. If I were once to believe that she is a hypocrite, that her devotion to my father is only a clever piece of acting, have no such doubt, no such fear, Grace, said the colonel heartily. Your father has told me, his old friend, the whole story of Lady Darnall's life. There is no mystery, nothing that could not be told as freely to you as to me, if your father were so minded. He has held back the knowledge from you only because the story is a dark story. If you knew all, you would know that Lady Darnall's first marriage was a time of martyrdom, that as wife and as mother she has been a martyr. I do not even know that she had any children, said Grace. Yes, there was a son, but he is dead, happily. He was a bad son, then? A very bad son, following in the footsteps of a guilty father. Your stepmother's life has been blameless, it has been even heroic. You cannot love her too well. "'And I have loved her with all my heart,' answered Grace. "'And I will go on loving her, and I will trust her implicitly, come what may. "'Dear old godfather, I feel ever so much happier after this talk with you. "'And I'll order my horse and scour the country in search of this ragamuffin suitor of yours,' said the colonel. "'And to himself he added, 
and if I find him it shall go hard if I don't buy him off pretty cheap, and set this little fool of mine free to smile upon honest Ted Colchester. End of chapter 8